morning to you. It's wonderful to be together on the Lord's Day, as always, and we, we come to yet another wonderful time of study in God's Word. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look with me at the 14th chapter of Luke. We have reached chapter 14, and um, as you find your place there, we're going to go to an Old Testament passage in just a moment by way of introduction so that we can... I'll just begin to look at this new section of Luke's gospel, which addresses more and more this whole matter of what keeps people from the gospel, what it is that keeps people from the truth, what blinds them to the truth. So with your finger in Luke 14, look with me back at the prophet Daniel, the prophet Daniel. I was recently discussing the book of Daniel with my daughter, and we were reflecting on the fourth chapter, fourth and fifth chapter at this point, in some reading that we've been doing. And in chapter four, you remember that if you know the book of Daniel at all, that this is the the account of a great king, King Nebuchadnezzar. You remember in this account that Nebuchadnezzar was reflecting himself on the magnitude and the power of his kingdom. The rule that had come up underneath him that he had begun to establish in Babylon. And in Daniel's prophecy in chapter 4, verse 30, it indicates that this is what he said as he thought about his kingdom. Is this not Babylon the great? which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. Notice the phrases that he uses, I myself, the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty. And you might mark it down as a note to self. As a general rule, when you hear some mortal repeating phrases like my power and the glory of my majesty, you might want to back away a little. Things could get serious. God had forewarned Nebuchadnezzar through a vision that he would have to learn the hard way not to exalt himself. And sure enough, that's exactly what God did. And just at the very time that this proud monarch was in the middle of his little self-worship service, the Lord spoke. Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. Sovereignty has been removed from you, or your kingdom, your rule has been removed. And, verse 32, you'll be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Verse 33, and immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. That's exactly what happened to him. Starting right at that moment and for the next seven years, he'd be running around in a field with a bunch of manure-covered cattle, his hair matted to his body at great length, claw-like fingernails, a diet of grass and a mind completely without the normal human reasoning. Any human being who has reached the point where they love to exalt themselves, always boasting of their accomplishments, how no one else has known as much as they do, built as much as they have, how they've outdone all the others around them, how they look better, how they have more money, they deserve to be recognized by others. Anyone who's reached the point where they believe they are entitled, listen, to the favor of God and the praises of men, that is someone that you should warn and then flee their influence. 
And when God returned Nebuchadnezzar's reasoning to him, again, just, just to think about that, that's humbling in and of itself. When God chose to return his reasoning to him, what does that mean? That means that only God can restore the sinner's right mind and change his heart. Only God. You can do nothing of your own. Notice verse 35 of Daniel 4. All the inhabitants of the earth, this is, this is Nebuchadnezzar now, all the inhabitants, the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. So he's including himself in that. After seven years of running around like an animal without reasoning, his reasoning returns to him and he says that the earth inhabitants are accounted as nothing before God, but God himself does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Notice down at verse 37 of Daniel 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways are just. And look at this. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Those words... Those words, like the Old Testament Shema prayer that you're to teach to your children when you were in ancient Israel, these words right here ought to become frontals on your forehead. They ought to be markers in your home. They ought to be the stuff of life that you talk about in your marriage and in your parenting and with your family members and anyone within the sound of your voice. They ought to know that you Know these words. You think about these words. God is able to humble those who walk in pride. What does that mean? That means that he has the authority to do it. Don't imagine that human beings have any authority if it were not delegated to them by God. Even Christ himself, standing in front of Pilate, said those very words to Pilate, the ruler at the time, thumbs up, thumbs down, I could take your life. And Jesus said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you. He has the authority to do it. He has the wherewithal, the power to do it. There is no, there is no greater power than God. If he's going to humble you, he can do it and will in fact do it without anyone stopping him. He also has the holy resolve to do it, beloved. He is holy. He must do it if he's going to be gracious to a sinner, if he's going to judge someone who is stubborn and given over, but if he's also going to be gracious to a sinner, he must do it because his holy resolve makes it happen. He's holy. He, he cannot abide some mortal rising to some earthly level as if, as if he could rise above God. This would be folly, and God knows it's folly. And he not only has the authority and the power and the holy resolve to do it, he even has the patience and compassion to often use it, not to further harden, but to soften and save, as he did here with Nebuchadnezzar. He softened him with it. Seven years, he didn't have to, didn't have to bring him out of his out of his insanity or out of the field, he could have just gone to his death living with the cattle. But God brought him out. In fact, God declared beforehand, before the judgment, that that's precisely what he would do. And every moment of the seven years of Nebuchadnezzar's folly and insanity was an offense to God, and yet God compassionately waited for that moment after he had declared that at the end he would return him to his right mind and then God would hear out of his mouth that declaration. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Now, head over to Luke 14, where we have been in the study of this gospel. As we have seen in these sections of Luke's gospel, Jesus has has come face to face with the spiritual pride of Israel's leaders again and again, and even more so as he moved closer to his death. In fact, if you've been with us in the study of Luke, 
Luke records back in 5, chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, that Jesus says, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who know they're sick. I've not come to call those who think they're righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not those who think they're spiritually healthy who visit the doctor, of course. But it's those who know that something's terribly wrong with their spiritual condition that go to find the physician of the soul and search for a cure. And Jesus had been telling Israel over and over again, I came to offer forgiveness to those who are willing to confess that they are sick. They are desperately sick and in need of a cure. But he also said, I have no treatment for those who think that I'm some sort of quack, some sort of spiritual witch doctor who keeps saying you have a disease when you know you're perfectly fine. I have nothing to offer you. Absolutely nothing. The Apostle John would later write in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. If you, if you say that you can get to God on your own, if you say that God ought to accept you as you are, if you say that, that you are good enough or the good will outweigh the bad, we've heard this over and over again from the Lord Jesus Christ, you are deceiving yourself. Truth cannot be in a person like that. A person who comes to Christ, who has known of their spiritual sickness and brought it to God as the only hope, that person knows that they will never say, we have no sin. That person always knows that they're unworthy. It is the person who says, I don't have any sin worthy of judgment. Oh yeah, I might make a few mistakes now and again. Compared with others, I might be better than them. That person, John says, does not have the truth in them. They can't possibly have the truth in them. Why? Because when you come to the truth, the Spirit of God explodes into your heart and into your mind, teaching you with great clarity the reality of it, that you were in need, and Christ is the answer, your only hope. Furthermore, if you look at your past and say, well, I've got no, no sins. Humanity isn't originally sinners, if we say we have not sinned, if we say human nature isn't corrupt, if we say that man is good enough, if we say that I don't have any sin in my past, my family doesn't have any sin, nothing has been passed down to me, then you make God a liar because he has said, you shall surely die. And when mankind sinned, yes, death began to be a reality. And since then, every human being has been corrupt. You make God a liar when you say there's no corruption, there's no original sin. His word can't therefore be in that person who says such things. This is where our fallen condition reaches its summit. When a fallen creature, obviously fallen by their very life testimony, when they declare, I measure up to what is divine, and if there is a God that I can measure up to who says I'm not good enough, then I don't want to worship that kind of God. My own righteousness makes me worthy of God's notice and admiration, says the proud. And any accusation of my guilt or some moral shortfall can, can only come from those less righteous and less worthy of me, let alone a God who would say such things. Depravity can't get any lower than that. It is the one thing that we see in our culture. And it's even worse if there's a spiritual overtone to it, according to the New Testament. It's one, it's one thing when our culture slides into degradation, moral degradation. We see it all around. We see Romans 1 happening all around. There's perversion growing from bad to worse, and then people are giving hearty approval for those who are living in moral degradation. Yes, that is, that is terrible, but that is not as low as pride can sink. Say, what do you mean? Well, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, that on, in those last days, men are going to grow from bad to worse, and they're going to be lovers of self. They're going to be hateful and filled with insatiable lust. But listen to this, holding to a form of godliness. Wow, in the last days, 
the cultures of the world will be blatant lovers of self filled with hatred for anyone that would stop them from having their lusts satisfied and yet they have a form of religion, of godliness, of this pretense that they serve God. Even though, Paul tells Timothy, they've denied its power. They are not Christians. They're not part of Christ. They have no power within them. And so over the next weeks, in our study, we're going to see this issue reach yet another fever pitch level with each encounter, because from chapter 14, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 17, verse 21, Luke continues to put before us these clashes with the proud. This is so humbling. Every encounter is just crushing to the proud heart. And as chapter 14 opens, the first 24 verses tell us about what happens while Jesus is yet at another one of these dinner parties, at another one of these distinguished guest dinners. He's in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees once again. The first 14 verses of this opening chapter, Jesus continues to unmask the spiritual arrogance that blinds people. Beloved, this is where we learn just how blinding pride is at any level of any kind. This is how we learn how pride blinds, how it makes people foolish, how it keeps them from seeing Christ for who he is. And particularly in Israel's case, they missed their Messiah and put him to death, even though he had come to seek and save his people who'd been lost. They missed it. And so I just want to go through these first 14 verses and just take, take the characteristics of pride one by one right out of this text. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 14. And it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy, and Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they kept silent. And he grabbed hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? They could make no reply to this, and he began speaking a parable to the invited guests. And when he noticed how they'd been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you're an invited guest by someone to a wedding feast and you and do not take or do not take the place of honor, rather, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, and then you'll have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends and your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you'll be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." Now, this, this text will take us some time to get through these, these uh, characteristics, really, of the proud that continue to rise off the page as Jesus interacts with them. And I just want to take them one by one. We'll look at three of them this morning. And don't be uh, concerned that we're going to move slowly <laughs> because you know that's how we do it, and we don't want to miss anything. And I don't want you to... Uh, 
to not learn how to look at the scriptures in context either. It's a very, very important beginning section as Jesus collides once again at a whole new level. The first thing we notice about a proud heart or the characteristic of pride, the first one that we notice here is that pride hates righteousness. Pride hates righteousness. Verse 1, it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. I had to bring out this point at first because as we've seen over and over again, the spiritual pride of the Pharisees was so deep-rooted that there was nothing about the person and character of Jesus that was attractive to them. And you must understand that this is a heart issue. It's not as though Jesus couldn't prove himself. It's not as though Jesus never did anything that would attract the leaders of Israel. It's not as though his teaching were filled with doctrinal error. Everything that he did, everything he said was unassailable. You couldn't find a flaw in any of it, so much so that when he faced off with them, John 8 says that he said to them, which one of you can ever convict me of any sin? It's not as though Jesus wasn't this most amazing, fascinating, and attractive individual, both his person and his conduct. But the Pharisees had a heart issue toward him, and it made them miss the righteousness in his person, the holiness in his character, the beauty and attractiveness of a holy life. They could not see wondrous things from the scriptures that were filling Jesus' sermons. Why? Because they hated the fact that he'd lived a holy life, and they didn't. They couldn't grasp the careful Old Testament precision of his teachings. Why? They didn't even bother to look at it. They were so miffed by the fact that everything he said was well-beloved by the disciples around him. Everything he did was compassionate and gracious and holy and righteous. They couldn't stand having his standard around them. They never saw the implications of his counsel to the brokenhearted. I mean, surely that would have gripped you. I don't know about you, but there are some moments in stories when I'm reading a book or a piece of history or watching some period piece and there's some reunion between broken lives or somebody is shattered in their life. I don't know about you, but that is to me the most gripping kind of scene. And whether you're a tearful person or not, there's something in humanity that looks at brokenheartedness and people who are shattered by life, let alone their own sin, but certainly by others who've done things to them that ought to elicit and secure human compassion, sympathy, empathy, call it whatever you want. Sometimes we call it tear-jerking moments. Jesus displayed those kind of moments all day, every day, and they never saw the implications of it. You know why? Because they were seething at how holy he is, and they were not. Every word he spoke, everything he did, every look he gave was filled with such profound authority and grace. And they couldn't understand the, the inconsistencies of their own approach to spirituality and be contrasting it with his and be humbled by it. Oh, no. They didn't see his true heart for people. They didn't notice his continual gracious offers of the gospel even to them. In a word, they were completely missing his person and his character because they hated his holiness. When they invited him to a distinguished guest dinner, it was to watch him, to catch him, to plot against him. Why? They hated him. They missed their own Messiah because he was getting all the spiritual attention, and they hated that. Mark down for your own study, John chapter 12, verse 19. When, when this whole thing reached an argument among the Pharisees, one of them said, and everyone joined in, they said to one another, you see that we're gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. Ah, there it is. 
Oh, you're gaining nothing in your argument of how to take him down. The world's already gone after him. We've lost it all. We hate that guy. He gets all the praise from the crowd. And here we are, the holiest of people on earth. Here we are walking through the crowds. They ought to recognize our righteousness and how far above we are of them. But no, everyone's gone after him. Oh, they hated that. And as Jesus went to his own hometown in Nazareth, Luke 4 records that he went in and he read from Isaiah's prophecy and he said, this day this is fulfilled in your hearing. And the text says, oh, they, they, they were marveling at the gracious words, the hope-filled words that were falling from his lips as he expounded Isaiah in the latter chapters. And then as soon as he declared, as soon as he declared that God was giving grace to those outside of Israel because of the nation's own spiritual pride and sickness, they saw themselves as righteous on their own. And so it says in Luke 4, 28, they were filled with rage and they rushed him out of the synagogue to throw him off a cliff. They hated having holiness around. John 8, 31, he said to them, the truth will make you free. We love to quote that verse. Ah, the truth will set you free. Well, they hated hearing that, that verse. You know why? They said to him, we, we have never been enslaved to any person or sin or, or anyone that could take us by our sinfulness and hold us in reproach. We've never been enslaved to any of that. We're Abraham's descendants. They hated him for saying that they weren't free. And later when he healed a blind man, John 9, 41, they said, well, you're saying we're blind? And he said, yeah, yeah, you're blind because you don't see your sin. They hated him even more. This is how it always is. People who love themselves and love the praises of men simply hate anyone who is truly humble and anyone who is others-centered. They can't stand it. Haven't you noticed that when you return an insult uh, with, with kindness, kind words, the person who has insulted you has one of two options. <laughs> they can either be crushed and, oh man, I, I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. Your kindness is an example to them. Or what's the other option? <sighs> can't stand you. You know, you're, you're giving a kind word. Why don't you insult me back? Why? They want you to stoop to their level. Why? Because it heaps burning coals on their head. Guilt. Look at John 3 for a moment. Keep your finger there and look at John chapter 3. This is the issue right here. Pride always hates righteousness, always hates holiness. If you've got some pride matter in your life, and someone comes along who actually is humble in that same area, you're going to have that same option. What are you going to do about that? John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Listen, beloved, pride hates righteousness. Deep-seated pride, spiritual pride, hates the fact that someone comes along, particularly in this case, it was Jesus. He came along and he actually lived out the law and he actually loved the heart of the law. He actually brought his heart under his heavenly father and he was actually submissive and doing the work of his father and compassionate and sacrificial. And these guys were supposed to be the holy ones of the earth, the most holy mortals. And, and they did none of those things and they knew it. His life was conviction. And pride always hates righteousness. And there they were at this distinguished guest's dinner. Luke 14 says they brought him in to watch him closely, closely. The second characteristic we notice about pride from Luke 14. The first is that pride hates righteousness. The second is that pride sets its own trap. Pride sets its own trap. Notice verse 2. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And you read that and you think, oh, that's interesting. This is, this is, however, about as bold a move as they've displayed so far. How convenient 
to have someone nearby whom they assumed would attract the attention of Jesus. Of course he would. They were right. Jesus was always reflecting the heart of our great God, which, by the way, is spoken of in Psalm 34, 18 this way. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. They knew that the compassion of Jesus could be played upon in a room like this because they knew he would be attracted to the situation. It would grab his attention to see someone at this distinguished guest's dinner on the periphery who has a disease. So you know at this point, they had planned this behind the scenes. It may not be that, that uh, there were many of these folks uh, who were invited. Some people think that that these dinners were rather open to, to the neighborhood and people could sort of walk up with these things. And uh, you, you don't see any of that here. You, you see the Pharisees, it's in his home, it's in that chamber, much like we saw in Luke 7 when that sinful woman, that immoral woman burst into the chamber. Here's a similar situation. And these guys had planned this beforehand. These guys had planned it. Why? Because this would be the perfect opportunity for Jesus to have his heartstrings pulled and he would be tempted to violate the Sabbath as he had reportedly done before. And they knew it. He cast out demons and healed Simon Peter's mother on the Sabbath, recorded in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 6, he healed a man with a withered hand. You remember... In Luke 13, we studied how he'd healed on the Sabbath a woman who was doubled over from years of struggle and disease. And despite the fact that this is a dinner for a distinguished set of guests, never mind that this is a Pharisee's house, so it's seen as holy and sacred ground, and any such thing would defile this house. It is, and in Pharisees' mind, it's far too righteous a venue for a diseased man whom they believed was obviously suffering because of some unrighteousness in his life or in his heritage. Despite all that, he was there, and they let him be there, and they wanted him there, and they wanted him close enough to pull the heartstrings of Jesus. In fact, at this point, the man with drops, he's right in front of Jesus. It may have very well been that he came to the periphery of the table and in the chamber, invited by them secretly, and it may have very well been that they whispered to him, get up in front of him. Just go on, get up there. Dropsy, by the way, is a, is a failure of vital organs that, as many of you in the medical field know, it, it allows the fluids of your body to be retained. It can't be absorbed, and, and it usually indicates a failure of major vital organs, often the heart. You can't get rid of fluids, and so the afflicted is terribly and painfully swollen and without help and will likely die from it. And so this guy is, as most scholars think, likely terminal at this point. The Pharisees knew all of this, and they're hoping Jesus won't disappoint. You say, well, how are they setting their own trap? This is just fascinating to me. Think of the embarrassing folly of their reasoning. They are hoping to catch Jesus in a violation of the Sabbath. And if he does this thing on the Sabbath... When he does it, he'll do it right in front of them. And if he does the healing, they're going to accuse him of not being their Messiah because he's violating the law, or at least according to their wrong-headed interpretation of it, which we've seen before. So they're hoping to catch him in a violation of the Sabbath because they're hoping he's going to do this miraculous healing of the diseased man right in front of them. If he does it, that will be the proof they need that Jesus isn't the Messiah. But here is the glaring irony. Jesus' miracle power done in front of them is, in fact, the authentication of his being the Messiah. It is the proof of it. Turn to John 10 for a moment. This is absolutely rich as Jesus faces off on another occasion with the Pharisees. John chapter 10, verse 30. What a striking account this is. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That is to say, we are of one essence. He is claiming to be God here. By the way, if anybody ever tells you Jesus never claimed to be God, just come to passages like this. It is clear in the original, this is what he's claiming. And 
verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him. So if somebody needs further explanation, here it is. Jesus said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And they said, for a good work, we don't stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now, so far, that in and of itself is ironically shocking because he says, I and the Father are one. And I showed you many good works. And what they meant, what he meant was, these are from the Father. In other words, divine works, miracle works. I've showed you all kinds of miracles. Which of the miracles are you stoning me for? Oh, we're not stoning you for any of the miracles. We just don't like the fact that you're claiming to be God. Guys, wake up. See, this is what hatred and pride does in the human heart. I will not acknowledge that I need Jesus and that I'm cursed if I don't have him. I will not acknowledge that. What's the net effect? I cannot see the irony uh, or blindness. Notice what happens. Jesus says, well, hasn't it been written in your law? I said you are gods. That is a quote from Psalm 82, verse 6. And Jesus says, Hasn't it been written in your law? I said you are gods. What does he mean? Vice, vice rulers on the earth, God, God's creatures, God's people are the highest of all created order. And God said, I, I said you are the vice regents, the, the ones like God. You're made in my image. You rule. Well, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, if he called the prophets of God, the revealers of God, the vice revealers on the earth, and the scripture can't be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming? Because I said I'm the son of God? Look, there were human beings that God says are vice regents on the earth, vice prophets, vice revealers. Look, if I say I'm the son of God, you're going to haggle with that? You're going to quibble over that? Verse 37 is the point. If I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, believe the miraculous works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Look, get rid of your blindness by looking at the miracle power from on, on high. Then you can listen to my message with clarity and your eyes will be opened. Back to Luke 14, they're basically ignoring what is about to happen. The irony is they set their own trap with blindness. Oh, we can get him to heal on the Sabbath. Somebody in the crowd should have said, do you hear what you're saying? You want him to heal, huh? hello, heal on the Sabbath. Quit quibbling about the day he does it. Look at the fact that he can do it. You guys are setting your own trap. Pride always does this. Always, always. People boasting about this, talking about this, and pride goes before the... We all know that. Why do we feed this stuff? Proverbs 26, 27. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. That was a truism for life, Solomon said. You know what happened in... Esther, Haman was plotting because he hated Mordecai. God was going to preserve his people through the one Jew left, Mordecai. And Esther's access to the king, which was risky business. And yet what happened? Haman built some gallows for Mordecai. And within a few hours, he himself was hung on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai, Esther 7.10. Oldest book extant that we have, probably dated the oldest, the book of Job, chapter 5, verse 13. God captures the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the cunning are quickly thwarted. Wow, it's so true. Listen, pride hates righteousness, and pride sets its own trap every time. If you are going to go down the road of feeding pride, you say, well, I'm in Christ. I'm already forgiven. That's true. That's why we should not do the things God hates, because we know better. We should humble ourselves. We should walk humbly before our God. We should work on this. We should get away from pride. We should forgive people. We should be compassionate and gracious. We should display the work of God in a humble heart, because if you don't, 
God chastens his people. And you will be like the mule of Psalm 32, and God will have to drag you around. Thirdly, we'll finish with this one. Pride not only hates righteousness, but pride not only sets its own trap, but pride is selective with Scripture. Pride is selective with Scripture. Back to Luke 14, Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, they knew the Scripture, but they kept silent. You know, they didn't want any scrutiny. This is pride. Pride doesn't want specific scrutiny of, of passages. You know, the moment somebody makes some bold claim and you open up, oh, let's, let's open up a, a Bible. I mean, it just gets all vague in general. False teachers are always that way. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They kept silent. That just blows my mind. These are Pharisees. They could parade their knowledge right in front of everybody. But when Jesus is present, they are filled with hiddenness. And Jesus grabbed hold of him. That's a verb that means he seized him. He took the guy who was hurting and he embraced him and healed him. Now that silenced the dinner, and it says Jesus sent him away. Well, you're like, what does that mean? Is he, did he just kind of, was he rude to the guy? No, the guy was trying to get out of there so he could go tell people. He's trying to go find his family, no doubt. I, I'm all restored. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine if somebody, if, if did, Jesus did this when you were in the hospital? You, you know, Lord, you, can, you know where to find me. I'm going to my family. <laughs> You're omniscient, but I'm not. I got to go talk to them. I got to show them I've been healed. So Jesus sent him away happily, rejoicingly. And notice what he says to them. These are familiar words from recent texts in Luke. Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? You remember from chapter 13, he said to them, do not each of one of you on the Sabbath Luke 13, 15, loose his ox or his donkey from the, from the stall and having led him away, give him a drink. In other words, you, there, there was a woman there doubled over. You won't bother to see her brought to a doctor to be fixed. But, but what you'll do is you'll water your animals. Why? Because your financial livelihood's at stake. Here, Jesus goes for the jugular even further. He says, what about a son? What about a family member? What about a family member? You'll do it on the Sabbath. You have a son, someone like that, or your livelihood. Won't you immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? And they could make no reply to him. Listen, the law of God did not forbid this kind of act on the Sabbath, as we have seen over and over again. And so they are exposed in their pride. Jesus had already said, you'll do for animals what you refuse to do for human beings. You will give yourselves the privileges of the children of Abraham, but you will refuse to hand that to other people. A sister in the covenant you wouldn't even do it for, he said in chapter 13. You'll water and feed your animals for your own livelihood, but you refuse to thank God that this woman has been freed by me from her illness. You're not even thankful and rejoicing. Man, this is grotesque hypocrisy. And Jesus' point is you're selective with Scripture. You, you know what the law says. You've tried to rewrite it a bit to make it seem like it's that you're righteous because it's an easier way to obey when you put some traditional application over the top of it. You elevate your practice of the truth to the level of truth, and then you hold other people on it as if you are the best at it. You know, I've seen this through the years. You know, it is, it is often not called self-righteousness. Sometimes it's called mere preferences and things like that. But you have to know that when someone takes a preference, whatever that preference is, we're all guilty of this. We have to be very careful. But if you take a preference in your life, some personal application of the truth in your life, 
and you take your practice of those principles and elevate them to the level of Scripture, forget not that it is self-righteousness. It is an attempt to feel better about yourself because of this little thing you practice. And lo and behold, if you carry that on long enough, the external will become the substance and you'll lose the principle. You will practice in your behavior something that makes you seem like you're close to God, but you're not any closer to God because you're not dealing with the heart. You're going to be like Israel at some point. Their lips speak to me and praise me, but their heart is far from me. Never allow the practice of a principle to be elevated to the level of the principle or soon the practice will become the substance in your life. And it won't be substance. It won't make you any, any more thankful to God or worshipful of God or obedient to God. It will merely be externals. You'll be satisfied with the externals. Why? Because it's easier. <laughs> it's easier. Pretty soon you'll be selective with scripture. It'll be all about your pet little passages that that you have found an external way to conform to that make you appear spiritual for, for easier pathways. I mean, I've seen this so often. Somebody will get a hold of some book and they'll start reading about how to conduct a weekly discipline of prayer and they'll start their discipline of prayer and it's wonderful, maybe an initial honest desire that they don't have enough prayer in their life and pretty soon they come into the church and they they come to a church service and they start saying, you know, you don't pray enough. You know, this church isn't a praying church. Really, church isn't a praying church. How, how would you know that? Well, because, you know, prayer involves this weekly discipline. And I've, I've mastered this discipline. And I can see that people here just don't care about that. What's happened? That person has taken the application of a principle and elevated it to the level of a biblical mandate. And it might be a great way for them to increase their communion with God and their dependence upon God. But the human heart loves the external look of it. We love the prideful appearance of it. And so we start to feed on that. Pretty soon we become judges of other people. We have no idea what's going on in their life. And it's easier for us to go home and check off our little boxes and here we go. How do you think that, that missions became all about decisions for Christ rather than discipleship? How do you think Christian camps became all about your little clicking of the boxes? Hey, did you do your quiet time? Did you do your quiet time? Yes, 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 yes. How do you think that ever happened? Because it's easier and puffs up our pride. Pride twists the scripture, is selective with scripture. Pride puts things over the top of scripture. Pride adds to scripture. Always. And Jesus exposes these guys right then. Behind the scenes, if your son fell into a well, you would not even think twice about that. But you are bothered by the fact that I would heal this sufferer. How can this be? How can the love of God dwell in you? You are full of pride. And your pride hates righteousness, so you watch me closely at a dinner. And your pride hates righteousness because you, you bring this, this sick person knowing I'm going to heal him, and it's the Sabbath, and you're trying to trap me, but you're setting your own trap. Because the very thing that proves I'm the Messiah, you're missing. Why are you missing it? Because you hate me. You don't love me. If you loved me, you would you'd follow me. You'd, you would love what I do. And you would be a child of my father. But instead, he said in John 8, you're a child of your father, the devil, because you hate righteousness and you love yourself. Verse 6 says, they could make no reply to this. Do not imagine that that was a moment of humility or wisdom. It was rage. It was embarrassment. It was humiliation. And it was more plotting and more scheming. And it was self-preserving. They did not want to be embarrassed any further. They, they should have thrown themselves at his feet and said, oh, 
God, I am undone. They weren't. They made no reply because they're full of themselves, which is why Jesus then enters into more exposure by speaking to them in a parable that will make the point, and those who have eyes and ears of faith will will get the point of the parable, and those that do not will be blinded nonetheless. Notice verse 11. We will get to the parable next time. Notice verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Love, these are straight at it. And this is a warning. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, it's because of pride that you don't know Christ. It's not that he hasn't proven himself. It's not that God is on trial philosophically, theologically. It's not that Christians haven't been nice people and so you've seen the church is full of hypocrites and that gives you cause to not deal with the truth. No. It's obvious that you're here out of some religious pretense or you wouldn't be at church. Or if you're here out of inquiry, if you don't believe in Christ, its, it's source is one problem. You believe you're good enough. Humble yourself before God has to do what he's done so often in his grace and in his compassion as he did with Nebuchadnezzar. If you're a believer here today, you can can see the danger here of allowing any kind of pride to fester. I know we all deal with it, but don't allow it to fester. Don't allow it to grow roots and get a seed bed Confess it. We'll talk about solutions to this at the end of this little study of this section. But what you ought to do is take at least these first three manifestations of it and before the Lord, ask the Lord, do I I have any of these? Get some trusted discipleship on the deal. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for...